This episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. Where, right now, you're going to find 20% off Oregon Pinot Noirs, which is fantastic. And also, you know, it's football season. It's baseball playoff season. Fall beer brats are fantastic. So, you know, Zupan's has an incredible selection of brats and sausages, some of them flavored with your favorite craft beers, but also you can pair them with your favorite beers as well. So from Freem and Occidental and also Seattle Cider, you can pair them with ciders. Check it all out at Zupans now and also check out Zupans.com to uh, see all the fun pairings they're talking about. Yeah, also on sale now through October 24th, you can save money on Double R Ranch short ribs. I'm looking at this gorgeous picture on the website, Chris, and it just makes me hungry hungry for fall food it's just this delicious looking short rib in some mashed potatoes and man that looks good uh, you can also go to the website for great recipes always great recipes but also private dining in cellar z it's holiday time is coming up and make sure to reserve your day or evening in cellar d they're in portland and lake oswego they are the hidden gems of places where you can do intimate private dining events. Very much so. Three locations to serve you, McAdam, West Burnside, and Lake Oswego. And information always found where? Zupans.com. All right, here it is. Time once again. It's Portland's Food Scene Podcast right at the fork with your host, Chris Angelus from Portland Food Adventures. And I'm co-host, Court Johnson. Hello, co-host, Court Johnson. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Doing all right. Getting geared up for, uh, I mean, Halloween's just around the corner. The holidays are upon us. It's uh, It's been a crazy couple of months. Yeah, for you, I'm sure, you know, you're leading a slightly different life than you have for the past X number of years. Oh, yeah. Back and forth from San Francisco to Portland, and you're still part of Portland, but you're also part of San Francisco now, too. I'm, I'm feeling it. Like, I, I'm following uh, both, and when the, the news is bad, I pick whichever news is less bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the two cities having a, a little bit of uh, some challenges right now, anyway. Similar struggles, definitely. Yeah. Well, I noted that our, I, I, I'm not a big Blazers fan any longer. Last I was fan was in the Aldridge Roy days, right. really. Yeah. So, um, and I noted, I mean, they traded away, uh, Dame and at his request they, should be noted. Yeah. At but his they, request. I've seen some predictions from experts that they, you know, they're predicting a 20 win season. Right. So, and it started off, it looks to me it didn't start off too well last night. So, anyway, that's why it's great being a baseball fan. We've got <laughs> World Series going on right now. So, now you, um, Who are you rooting for in this scenario? Because you got the Diamondbacks I, I, and what really is it, the Rangers? I, I wish I'd made a bet earlier on the year mm. because neither of these teams would have been ones. As a matter of fact, as a Met fan, there were a ton of Met fans who scoffed at the idea of the Rangers being competitive when Jacob deGrom was traded there. Yeah. And he tried to tell Met fans, well, I was convinced that uh, the Rangers are a good place to be right now. And all Met fans in the beginning of the season thought, 
That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And now they're going to the World Series. Yeah. So well, even like the the Diamondbacks, my understanding is they were the the uh last team to get into uh they were the had the worst score of right. everybody that made it into the playoffs out of uh the American League, National League. I can't remember. I don't National know. League. National League. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the whole thing is topsy-turvy now, and we won't get into it because this is not a baseball no. podcast. But um, but the food scene is topsy-turvy, too. How's that for a segue? It is very nice. Very nice. Yeah. And it is. I'm not just making a segue up. And in this um, this episode that we have today, it's a special one. We speak with Hillary Dixler-Canavan, who is a national editor or the national editor for Eater. So she was in town to promote her latest book, uh, which features recipes, but she happened to be in Portland to promote it. Uh, a couple of few Portland restaurants in there that she'll talk about in the podcast who had recipes featured. And I talked to her about how she chose those Portland restaurants and the other ones around the country to be featured. And then we get into a, I think a deeper conversation about Eater and its coverage of restaurants and how they cover and, and she agrees the next shiny new thing and some of the restaurants that have been around for a long time who've been really proving that they can do something consistent and great for a long time. They don't get as much coverage, but uh, Hillary provides some really good thought out, and I'm sure she's thought of this. They've all thought of this in their, with their team, uh, rationale for what gets covered on Eater and how it gets covered. And, uh, I was satisfied. I was very satisfied with the answer. Things that have been causing me to scratch my head for a while. I mean, it comes down to demographics, I think. Mm-hmm. And, and what, what is news? You know, what, what, what is newsworthy? It's hard to cover something that isn't doing something new. So, and, and she even calls, uh, makes it a point to say that's the definition of news, new. So anyway, I really enjoyed this conversation. We talk about a lot. We talk, uh, we foray for a second into tipping and I think she makes some good points there. Um, and, and talks about where the restaurant industry is going and what its challenges are and how individual restaurants are handling those challenges differently. I I found it to be a very interesting conversation. I think perhaps Hillary expected we were just going to talk mostly about her book, but that's halfway through. The first half of the conversation is larger industry issues, which I think are of interest to, you know, you and me and our listeners. So... Hillary was in town to promote her new book, which is called Eater, The 100 Essential Restaurant Recipes from the Authority on Where to Eat and Why It Matters. I hope they had room for her, uh, you know, to indicate that she was the author on that cover with all those. <laughs> That's a big title. Long title. Yeah. So um, at any rate, uh, there's a lot of great things in the book and a lot of great things in our interview, too. So there we go. We have, um, I think it's a nice interview with Hillary Dixler Canavan of Eater. Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. Unsurpassed quality from the best meats and wines to local baked goods, fresh flowers, and an extensive craft beer selection. Step into Zupan's and be inspired for your next meal. Food-loving customers and local chefs know that Zupan's is the place to find the very best Northwest Bounty in Portland. 
West Burnside, McAdam, and Lake Oswego. Local and family-owned for over 40 years. Zupan's Markets. Ringside Steakhouse. For over 78 years, Ringside has been providing the best steaks and has been the home of the beacon of great hospitality in Portland. Make a reservation today at ringsidesteakhouse.com. And while you're there, sign up for their mailing list to be the first to find out about exciting specials and events going on at Portland's beloved Hallmark restaurant, Ringside Steakhouse. And by Portland Food Adventures. It's your opportunity to travel to the world's most celebrated food destinations with Right at the Fork host, Chris Angeles, and some of his favorite chef friends. Check out PortlandFoodAdventures.com for exciting and delicious itineraries to Spain, Italy, and elsewhere. Stay in great hotels, eat incredible food, and leave the planning to Portland Food Adventures. Thank you, Hillary. I appreciate your... uh... You're being with us this morning on your day in Portland. Is it just a day? No, I got here on Saturday and I'll be leaving tomorrow. So Saturday we did an event at Powell's um, and then we're doing an event tonight at Vivienne, a party. Oh, great. That's a small spot, so it can't be a huge party. Yeah, we're um, our hope is that people will kind of come and go, stop by, grab a bite to eat, take off, um, almost like an open house. Good. So So where have you been to eat since you've been here? Um, I, let's see, whenever I go to Portland, my first meal is always Nong's. So I held true to my tradition. That was my first meal off the plane. I did a solo dinner at Khan. And then where did I go yesterday? I went to Kochka for dinner yesterday. You know, my faves. You're doing and, the case. Yeah. You know, oh yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like Portland is a city that I really enjoy checking in on those favorite spots that to me, it doesn't feel like a trip to Portland if I haven't had Nongs and if I haven't gone to Kachka. So that's like, yeah. <laughs> well, okay. I have that. So there are so many places to go and obviously Kachka is a great choice nationwide. It's a special place. Khan is also obviously, it's gotten a lot of notoriety nationwide. But if you go to those two places and then leave yourself one or two others in Portland to go every time you come, it feels to me as though you're missing the boat. You're allowed to feel that way about my experience. Oh, I understand. <laughs> but I'm just saying that there are so many other places that uh, I understand going back to a place you like. But um, Yeah, and it's something that I feel very particular about in Portland specifically. Um, I think the mainstays of Portland's restaurant scene are tremendous. So getting the chance to go to a place like Kachka is inherently a privilege. And I don't want to miss out on that. Um, it helps me feel like I'm really in Portland, not just another city. Mm-hmm. And I know that, you know, with my work, it's always a balance between going to what's new and checking in on what's essential. And... I I have the utmost confidence in my ability to do that, even while hitting my face. I wasn't, I wasn't challenging, challenging you. I was just giving you, you know, we know how many great places are in Portland. And so I think you understand what the nature of my comment was, because I live outside of Portland now, and I don't get the opportunities I used to when I was 50 pounds heavier. And right there amongst all the restaurants, I went all the time. And now I have to pick and choose my, um, my opportunities. So um, yeah, and I mean, that puts you more into the experience of an out of town visitor. 
And I think there's a really good argument for out-of-town visitors to hit essentials, to hit long-time spots, to feel up to sp- as part of feeling up to speed about what makes a city special and what makes a city unique. And that I I do that when I travel to New York. You know, New York has so many new restaurants every year. I always I'm I have my eye on what's hot, what's new, what I have to check out. But a trip to New York isn't complete for me if I haven't also gone to Rust and Daughters. If I mm-hmm. haven't also That was one of mine. That's one I go to every time yeah. first thing. So Yeah. I, I'm with you on that. But, you know, that leads me to one of my ongoing questions. It just doesn't have to do with this podcast, but it does have to do with Eater and the way Eater covers things. And since you're an integral part of how Eater covers restaurants, I've always felt that in in Portland and I'm sure in other markets, the um, the emphasis is on what's new and shiny. And we have had... We don't have as many anymore after the pandemic and after George Floyd and all the stuff that happened downtown. But we've had so many wonderful mainstays mainstays in Portland that I used to wonder about how those places get coverage, at least equal coverage or some kind of balance versus the next shiny new thing. And how do you view that in terms of how Eater covers food and influences people to go to places? Yeah, I think when I think about Eater, our two most famous editorial products are the Eater 38 and the Eater heat map. And I think that really sums it up where the 38 is like the 38 essential restaurants in a city to, I believe most of our city sites use a a minimum of six months to be on that map. So it's not for what's new and shiny. It's for what's established and become an an essential part of the city's dining scene. So there's that, which that's where like institutions might live and the sort of restaurants that together like make the fabric of a city's dining scene. And then we have our heat map, which is what's new, what's buzzy. I think on the national site where I focus, I cover both. You know, I think part of what makes new restaurants attractive to cover is like because that's inherently news something new is how you make news. It's right there in the, it's right there in the word. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think the way I like to cover established restaurants, um, who are you using as your source? Where are you finding trends that you're covering? Can only a new restaurant create a trend or can an an established restaurant lead a trend? The answer is it can. Um, And again, when I think about who I'm using as sources in my reporting, established restaurants, established chefs, established GMs, owners, those are, that's a different knowledge base than someone doing it for the first time. And they both can have value in a story and give you different information and give you a different perspective. Um, I think I know on a personal level, I care a lot about essentials and I care a lot about institutions. On my Instagram, I live in LA and on my Instagram, I have like a project that's called the Institution Beat where I go check out old restaurants and I do a little write-up and kind of put that restaurant in context and like what it kind of examine what I have come to see as this restaurant's role in the ecosystem. Um, And I know that I'm not alone in that love at Eater. Um, And then when I think about, you know, the Eater cookbook, when I was figuring out what restaurants to include in that, it was really important to me that we had a full spread of kind of buzzier, newer, there's some pop-ups in there, really up-and-coming folks. But then there are also like 
real tried and true um, legends of American dining, like Chez Panisse is in the cookbook. Keen's Steakhouse in New York is in the cookbook. So it was very important for the book in order to feel like eaters coverage. It had to include a breadth of restaurants. And I think that's important because I think that's what people consider when they're going out to eat. Do we want to go to the new place we just heard about or the place that we've been enjoying for a long time? I have, even in terms of traveling, going to cities I've been to numerous times, I have to weigh that versus do I want to go learn a new place and uh, check out a new city? It's uh, it's always a conundrum for me. So I guess either one, wherever if you end up at either one, you're generally happy. And if something's getting great, you know, across the board reviews and it's new, great. It's fun. It's fun to try those places. And I've always felt I've, you know, Brooke has been on this podcast quite a bit. And before her, Aaron and Maddie, all the eater editors, and we've always discussed, you know, the shiny new thing. Um, I tend to think that lately, and I, I don't have a lot of experience uh, paying a lot of attention to either outside of perhaps Seattle and Portland and a little bit when I went to New York. But I tend to think because your editors are a little younger, and you can correct me on this, I'm happy to have you do this, that Asian gets a little more uh, attention than some of the older, maybe French-oriented restaurants and some of the places that have that have been in there. And then I have, I always take a little bit of issue with um, and I know you have to do this, but how many food carts are in the Eater 38? I feel like there are some real stalwarts that are left off because the one-year-old food cart is on there. And that, if someone's coming from out of town, if that's their thing, great. But there are some great restaurants that have put a shitload of money into their and time into what they do, their craft, that are left off because there's a food cart. The project is inherently editorial. It's not just what are the most famous restaurants in Portland or in New York or whichever city, whichever city's map it is. We are asking our editors to make a call to say, Mm -hmm. when you put this, when you look at the city as a whole, what are the restaurants in this moment that define dining that taken as a list gives you an overview of what makes the city what it is, what makes it special um, what is shaping, what are like the, what is shaping dining culture in this city? Um, our local editors do also update the 38s fairly regularly. I think the update is once a quarter. So Mm -hmm. if there's a restaurant that you were excited was on it that came off, it may well come back on, but it, we took it off to make room for something else to tell a different story. Mm -hmm. In terms of what cuisines get coverage on Eater. Again, I'm not going to speak to individual editors' um, points of view there. I think I know in my own coverage, you know, a few years ago, there was this whole bistro revival. So I covered I covered that a lot. Um, and pop-ups, and, I'm sure you covered too. Mm-hmm. And so I think if you're noticing certain through lines getting increased coverage, that might be because that's an increasingly important through line in dining right now. That if you look at what's new and what the people in the industry are excited about exploring, it might be that through line that you're seeing reflected on the site. Um, in terms of age and experience on our staff, 
it's pretty varied. I've been at Eater for 10 years. Prior to Eater, I worked in the New York City restaurant industry. Um, and um, I don't, you know, I don't consider myself, I'm not green, you know, I'm a, not quite 40 yet, but you know, I'm almost there. And this is my, this is my profession and my career. Um, and having a mix of people on staff, people with lots of experience, people who are newer and, and for like lack of a better word, new and hungry for this kind of work. I think that creates a really robust editorial staff because the fact is like, who's going out to eat multiple times a week? Mm -hmm. Often it's younger people. So having folks who are in that same stage of life as that, that segment of our readership, I think is really important. So that, that relationship is there. Um, And then there are folks who are more like me who have been at this a long time who have over a decade's worth of knowledge about how the restaurant scene has evolved. And I think that's an important perspective for a publication too, so that there's folks who have history and context. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm thrilled with the Eater team and on .com, we have the strongest team we've ever had um, on site right now. And I'm really excited to be a part of that. I, you know, you make a, I think that was a good explanation because you know, I'm a. Uh, my career has been in marketing and advertising, and of course, your target market is important. And if your data shows that most of the people who are going out to eat are of a certain age range, then of course it's important to be talking to them and seeing, you know, uh, highlighting the places that they would have most most interest in. When you mentioned industry and i'm not challenging you here i'm just fine i just find the whole thing very interesting on what gets coverage when you mention industry whenever i talk to anybody in the industry no matter if they're 30 50 whatever those folks tend because of their hours and where they work they tend to like asian food they're going out after service to enjoy those places. And it was a realization for me 10 years ago when I started being involved in the industry. Why is it that everywhere they go is that? And because they don't have time to go during regular service hours to the places that you're writing about as much, maybe once in a while, but maybe not uh, as often. They're going to the kind of, you know, the places that are open till 2 a.m. and enjoying those. And I think they like... Generally, people in the industry I found like those flavors. Um, they punch it a little more than some of the other places. It's just one observation I've had over yeah, time. Yeah, I think I hesitate to describe Asian restaurants because that's like a really general term. It's very broad. That's very broad and and not necessarily like helpful when categorizing. But I think you know when I think about the food trends of the last twenty years. I would say like in American restaurant culture, there was a huge, there's been a huge shift in um, widespread. There's been a, diners are much more knowledgeable now. Like a larger swath of diners are more knowledgeable than they've ever been. Part of the last 20 years has also seen the like rise of Korean food in America, Chinese cooking in America, um, And then, you know, fusion is kind of a dirty word, but this sort of new era of fusion that started 15 years ago where chefs are pulling flavors from their heritage, techniques from their years spent working in fine dining and creating something unique to their own point of view 
And I think that has been one of the dominant narratives of the last 20 years. Um, And I think, you know, to your point about like, well, what are cooks eating? I think there's also a question about like, well, who are the cooks? You know, what cooks are we even thinking about when we're asking that question? Because sure, there's like the there's the kids who have graduated with their student loan debt out of the CIA, but there are also people who work in this industry because it's a way to make money and they, that's like a different path into the industry too. Um, And so I just hesitate to paint with a broad paintbrush about that. No, I'm not. Yes. And uh, you know, I've always been curious about that and let's face it. The, uh, what has a lot to do with people, how people are influenced now is not only eater. And I give, uh, I, you know, I think that a lot of people pay attention to it. And then food television has brought chefs into the limelight. Before that, we didn't know who was the chef at a restaurant, generally speaking. Some of the big restaurants we did, but now here in Portland, man, that's why I started Portland Food Adventures is we have this, all these incredible chefs doing great things. And I viewed them as our, you know, our celebrities here and they were approachable and fun to talk to and they'd give you recommendations of where to go it was they were a good resource too so i think that um all the coverage of restaurants that is happening now from you know television to print to uh digital um is uh you know is lending to people's knowledge of it and everybody comes at it from a different perspective as well and so you know i'm older so you know i recall all the time my mother saying they don't target anything to me anymore. And I'm starting to get there. Um, all right. If I haven't, if I'm not starting the way I've expanded my knowledge is to travel internationally and, and be able to weigh some of those experiences versus what we have here. Do you do a lot of international travel so that you can, you can have a broader base of knowledge? Yeah, I have. I think I, to be candid with your audience, I was pregnant when the pandemic started. Um, So I had a baby in June 2020. uh, And my experience of new parenthood. Congratulations, I guess three years removed. Yep. My my experience of becoming a parent of new parenthood was also tied to like not being allowed to leave my house. Um, So I am still getting my way back to the level of travel, um, being out of my home, (laughs) you know, that I was before I became a parent in a world historic crisis. Um, But I do travel for work through the country um, regularly. That's a part of my job as our national restaurant editor. And I think that context that comes from being on the ground, from being in other cities is hugely important. I think an overlooked element in the media equation, especially in national media, is like, not only do I travel, I don't live in New York anymore. Um, I, all while working for Eater, when I started working at Eater, I was living in New York. I then moved to San Francisco with my husband for his job. Then we moved to LA, all while I've been on our national site. And, you know, I report into Eater's executive editor who lives in Portland. Um, We have teammates who live in Texas. And, in Chicago. And, you know, we're like a truly national team, which is different from most other nationally scoped media outlets that cover food. So I think even the act of traveling, the act of living somewhere that's not New York, puts a broader lens on (laughs) what, you know, on what we're seeing and how we cover things. 
um, because I really think there's a tendency. And I know I did it as a New Yorker where if the thing is happening in New York, that must make that inherently means it's important. And that is true in the sense that New York is a major market. And it's true that New York restaurants can set the tone for restaurants in other cities, but it's not the only city that does that. Um, so yeah, I, I think that element too is like, it's not travel, but within the world of food media to not be based in New York is like, I live in travel because I don't live in New York, you know? Well, and you're still connected to New York, uh, you know? The, the parent company is headquartered there, if I'm not mistaken. And also, you have access in New York and everywhere to your great editors who can tell you where to go. I mean, you're in a great position. No, uh, it's, so, it's one of the you know, things anybody that makes can read Eater, but you know them. Yeah. Part, yeah. yeah. It, and well, and I it's think what made it so big, so fast. Nobody was doing that. Yeah. I think an, uh, another kind of piece of that puzzle of how Eater has grown into what it is, is that we were investing in local coverage, local news coverage, local dining coverage in a time when local news outlets have been folding. Um, and it's a, it's a shame that in some of our cities, we're among the only local outlets with a local writer there. And that's, that's just a fact of like the media landscape right now that like sometimes the eater site is among the only local outlet covering restaurant news. And, and your coverage is different than it used to be, which is, you know, we still have the Oregonian here and Michael Russell who's doing reviews. You guys, you eater doesn't review necessarily. Um, it covers it in an objective, in the most objective fashion that it can. Um, but it's different. You know, you're not getting you're not getting the same types of reviews that you used to because the budget isn't there for for local media outlets. Um, yeah, I mean, so restaurant criticism is an so, expensive it's an expensive game to be in. Um, you know, our local eater sites do have I would say the primary focus of our local eater sites has shifted in recent years from perhaps an equal balance of news and service to more service. And so service journalism, just for anybody who's listening who doesn't know that term, I think of like the definition of service journalism as like it's a it's an article or a piece of media that's helping you figure out how to do something or helping that's helpful to the reader. So our maps are service. It's telling you where to eat. It's giving you info about what you'll find there. Um, it's It's meeting a need or a question that a reader might have. Um, you know, and those maps, I don't know that I would use the term objective. I think, again, I consider that those are like a highly editorialized product, um, where it's an editor making a call about what restaurants make the most sense to offer up in this situation. Um, and then on our national site, you know, our coverage really runs the gamut. We cover TV, movies, like food culture, um, I lead our best new restaurants list every year. That's a project I always enjoy doing. And, you know, my the way I approach that is I invite the city editors into that process. I have them write blurbs so that we're really making the most of that on the ground network of experts that we have. Um, and, you know, the restaurant coverage that I um, assign, edit, write, 
I focus on nationwide trends. I write a lot about operations. Um, that's a particular area of interest for me. Um, and I write about, you know, the the people, the places and the ideas that have the potential to shift or change restaurant and dining culture. Um, when I mentioned the word objective, I meant that no one's saying this is the best dish ever and you have to go there or service really sucked and this restaurant gets one star. That doesn't happen on either. But you you called it by very virtue, uh, the virtue of what you um, decide to cover. That's an editorial judgment in and of itself. Yes. So, so yes. we've seen that. I'm very curious um, if you're curious, if you're covering the industry as a whole, of course, one of the things that we've seen happen is um, labor shortages across the board. You know, when I started, I don't know if you're familiar with my uh, Portland food adventures that I started in 2010 and used to get coverage in, it's interesting, I used to get coverage in Eater and local TV on every event that I did. That would be impossible now because there have been so many events that are happening. But I used to be able to do a collaborative event once a month and make them happen. Now when I approach restaurants, they'll say, I don't know what my labor is going to be like in how I'm going to have coverage in three months. I can't commit to that now. That's across the board that's happening. Is that uh, a problem that's happening across the USA? And do you see a, that changing anytime soon? Yes, it's a nationwide issue in the industry. Like it's a major ripple effect from the pandemic. Um, do I think it's changing anytime soon? Soon? No. I think there are individual solutions that a specific restaurant can find and work on. If you're adjusting your pay, if you're finding ways to make that job more desirable for your staff, any in, like I think it's at an individual level. Uh, there are restaurants who are finding their ways through it, but at a systemic level, I we're not close to done with this, and it's so multi layered. You know, restaurants are getting squeezed from inflation. Everything is so expensive right now. Meanwhile, that's true for their workers, too. So if you're a restaurant worker, everything in your life is more expensive. You're relying on tips. You're, you know, it, it, that ripple of everything costing more is mean, it, like, it's making it so that the historically uneven, let's say uneven pay of restaurant work is harder to shoulder because your life is significantly more expensive than it used to be. I think I see potential solutions in eliminating the tipped minimum wage. I mean, eliminating tipping um, and allowing um, restaurants. Yeah. Like I think if, if we were able to just, if I were like king for the day and could eliminate tipping nationwide, it would give the chance for restaurants to price their menus accurately to have a, a product that they sell priced such that they can, you know, pay their overhead, pay their staff and make profit off of it. But there's all of these artificial caps on what the, the a menu costs because like, well, you can't give people sticker shock. Things are priced lower than they should because we've offset the cost of payroll onto customers mm -hmm. who tip. 
Um, meanwhile, like I said, like the cost of the goods that the restaurant is selling is much higher than it used to be. Um, and like even the plywood, you know, it's like you need to do a repair. The plywood's more expensive. Everything. Everything. Cleaning. Everything. The, the linens. Every single Everything. thing is more expensive. You know, it would be an easy fix except for the fact that consumers are also suffering the same problems. That's right. They're, everything's more expensive for them, too. So uh, I think that most diners in the know would be happy to pay more. They just can't. And so or they haven't been challenged enough to pay a little bit more or maybe eat out a little bit less, but eat better. Yeah. I mean, people are eating out less, broadly speaking. Um, like this has been one of the themes I've noticed, like in talking with chefs across the country where one, like after the vaccines came out and people, there was a big spike where people were really excited to go back out. Now that things have normalized, this new normal of people's behavior includes less dining out than it did in 2019. And it's like that, I believe a big part of that is like, like what I was talking about. I got really used to doing my life at home. That's like how I'm in this phase of life. So there's like that element, right? Where like people just got out of the habit, but also things are really expensive right now. And for, com- you know, you, maybe your employer hasn't given you a raise in a long time. Maybe, you know, for whatever the reasons are, you have less disposable income than you did in 2019. That also will put a damper on your dining out. So, I mean, yeah, I don't know. The answer is to like, let's have a better economy. Yeah, I think that's the answer. But it's tough. And then, you know, I got to the point during the pandemic where I could not eat another meal out of a box. That to me is not dining per se. It's eating. And so, um, you know, we're out of that. But I think uh, it's going to take a little while. I'm not going to jump on the opportunity to talk about tipping with you. I completely agree that it would be. uh, And I think the biggest thing. Oh, oh, look, I'm talking about it. But the biggest thing now is tip weariness. By the time someone gets to a restaurant for dinner, they've already looked at a square being turned around at them six times for coffee, for a little this, a little that. And then What's taking a hit is they're tired. People are tired of tipping by the time they get to dinner or, or lunch. I don't know. I think that's part of it. But um, yeah, it's not an easy fix. And, you know, you've got a lot of people that left the industry. There are fewer yes. people now. Yes. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the folks who left the industry during the pandemic, and remember, not all of them left by choice. There were ma- like waves and waves of layoffs, furloughs that led to layoffs. Um, But a lot of people left and found something more sustainable for their life. Um, And those folks, you're not going to get them back, you know? So I think there's an element too of like what I meant by an individual, like at an individual level, a restaurant can work to make the job more attractive. I think all of those levers that any individual restaurant can pull, it's really worth exploring that. How do you make a job attractive for your staff? Um, but I and do. It's expensive like I said, to do that, though. It's expensive to do that, but it's also expensive to have high turnover. Right. Um, like there's a cost to that turnover too. Um, there's a cost to your other employees who are shouldering the work of this role not being consistently filled. It's a cost to your customers who maybe have a bad experience that don't, and then they don't come back. Or rather, that would be a cost to your business. But you know, there's consequences to poor staffing. Um, but yeah, I think, yeah, I think at a systemic level, a a big part of it is, is wrapped up with wages and tipping. 
And you see some minor changes. You're seeing a lot more ticketed dining now. Yeah. So mm-hmm. to prevent from people canceling at the last moment and, uh, you know, that's expensive for restaurants to have an eight top sit unused when it could have been, um, those sorts of things. So you see a little bit here and there, but, and there's no, as you said, there's no big fix. So listen, Hillary, I sincerely appreciate the opportunity to be able to talk to you about all these things that have nothing to do, well, a little, but not, not much to do with your book. Oh, I and know. I want, and, I, and you, you know, I, it's, it's an honor to have you here. So I'm not going to just let the opportunity pass by to talk about larger industry issues, but I do want to uh, talk about your book because I think it's exciting. And, you know, we've had, a, I have behind me, you might see a lot of local cookbooks that I probably don't use enough, but they're really cool. And uh, gr- great to have opportunities. Most of the restaurants that have published those cookbooks or chefs are no longer in business in Portland. That's sad. Um, but you have, I guess, tapped into your entire network nationwide to find out where you should be going. And then I'm curious about the process of how you decided which recipes should be featured. Were they chef driven? Did you go to a restaurant and they said, here's what I think you would like the most? Or did you try seven dishes and then say, this is the one I want to write about? I have no idea how that worked. Yeah. So it was in a way it was both. Um, When it came to create what restaurants I wanted to feature in the book, there were certainly a bunch that I had on my initial outreach list that I knew I for sure wanted to, you know, try to see if they wanted to be a part of the book. I also opened it up to our local staff and asked who they wanted to see in in the Eater book, what would make them excited about this book and what they felt, you know, uh, wouldn't be an Eater book without this, you know. Um, And then when it came time for outreach, for some of the some of the restaurants, I had a very clear ask. I knew what recipe I wanted. For some of them, not only did I know what recipe I wanted, I know what intervention I wanted to make into the recipe to make it more doable at home. So when I reached out, I could be like really precise in what I wanted and clear. And then for other restaurants where I didn't feel as strongly about it being one specific recipe, I reached out and just, and I said more like, we definitely want you in this book. Like, I'd, I'd love to feature you. Like, here's what the book is going to be about. Do you have any recipes from the restaurant that you think would make sense, um, given our goal of bringing restaurant recipes home, making them doable at home? Um, and so that it was a mix, really, of, you know, chefs recommending and then me specifically asking for what um, I wanted to feature. And then once the recipes came in... Um, I worked with a brilliant recipe tester and developer named Louis Victa. Louis um, has a background in professional. She was a, she's a retired line cook. So it was really helpful to collaborate with somebody who was fluent in chef chicken scratch and who really was able to be like, Oh, I know what they meant. Cause on the line, I bet they were doing this. And then having that skill set to then, figure out what was supposed to be happening and then figure out how to make that doable at home. Um, And, you know, we would go back and forth with the chefs. Like if there was a thing that we just couldn't figure out, we would ask when we made interventions, even something like using store-bought chicken broth instead of a sub recipe of making your own stock or something like that. We made sure that the chefs knew that we were doing that. And then in the head notes, um, which is the part of the recipe at the top, 
I really tried to make sure that I was being clear with our readers what changes we've made to the recipe and saying like, at the restaurant, they do this. Here, we're going to have you do this, this, and this. So you can focus on the hardest part of the recipe, which is that. Um, so that we were always being clear of like what what was at the restaurant versus what was here on, on the page. Did you get pushback from chefs on that when you may have made a change that they thought, oh, no, 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 it's not going to be the same? Um, truthfully, th- I didn't get a lot of pushback because that was part of what they knew that they were agreeing to. Okay. So if I think it's more like if that project didn't appeal to you, you would have said no to being in the book. Um, I, there's like a, I have like a few examples in my head of like when we had these interventions um, and folks being excited about it because, you know, you're at home, you don't have a prep team, you don't have like, it's not just that like, you know, you don't have a dishwasher, you don't have a person whose entire job it is, is to clean up after you in a machine that like takes a minute to do it, you know? Um, so most of the chefs, I think really all the chefs that, you know, are in the book understood that we were trying to thread this needle and like most restaurant cookbooks don't bother. Um, like most restaurant cookbooks are really like, I would say like mementos or souvenirs, artifacts of a moment in time where it's recording a restaurant's recipe as it is in the restaurant. We were really trying to make this usable to really connect our readers more deeply with the restaurants they love by bringing, you know, the food into their own kitchen. Um, but that we means had, like it had we to had, be uh, home friendly. Our good friend Gabriel Rucker on uh, the podcast a long time ago when he had, I guess he had published his cookbook. I don't think it was right then and there, but it was recent. And I don't remember the context in which it came up, but he pointed out, oh, yeah, there are certain fuck you recipes in this cookbook, meaning there's no possible way on earth you're going to be able to do this at home. But we included them just for the reasons you said. It's a it's a moment in time and and a, a placeholder for them in terms of what they were producing. And I would imagine some of those recipes he and others are still using and some maybe not as they went on. Yeah. And, you know, for something like the like a restaurant cookbook like that, you know, other chefs can read it, get inspired. Even a home cook can get inspired from the ideas. And that's something I hope for with our book too, where even if you're not going to go through and cook every single recipe, you can read about it. You can learn. You can let the inspiration that these chefs who are brimming with inspiration have get some of that fire under your belly too and like try some stuff out. So were some of the uh, decisions as to what to publish based on perhaps yours and others uh, feelings or knowledge of the chefs per se? In other words, they'll be fun to work with. I like them. I want to put them in the cookbook versus this is going to be the best thing you eat. So the primary consideration was to paint a portrait of American dining right now. What defines American dining? What experiences, what restaurants do we need to include to paint a vivid picture of, you know, restaurants in America? Um, Of course, yes, I, I would say like I'd be lying if I said there weren't some folks that I was eager to collaborate with and get them into the book um, for reasons beyond the fact that I think that they're doing essential, you know, um, genre-defining work. 
or for no other reason that you could get a reservation at Khan. Now that you've worked with Gregory on the cookbook, or if you had, yeah. I'm just so Gregory's not joking. in the cookbook. I know, um, I know unfortunately, but I just thought in the future. Yeah, um, no, I got my reservation at Khan by showing up at five, drinking at the bar until someone can't, you know, didn't show up for there. I'm glad to hear that. That's very Yeah, I don't, I personally, I don't, I really don't ask for favors. I don't, you know, I don't, Gregory didn't realize I was there until after I had paid, which is ideal for me. I don't, I don't, I don't pull strings. I don't like it. Um, I, it's not, I, yeah, that's not who I am. Um, but I think it was more in terms of there were some chefs that I knew beyond just a recipe that they would be really excited and open about knowledge sharing because that's what so much of the book is. It's trying to get the knowledge that chef, not only chefs, but chefs, bartenders, sommeliers, operators have at their fingertips into our readers' hands so that they can put that knowledge into good use at home. So along with recipes, the book is full of how-to guides, shopping lists, as told-tos, you know, ideas, tips, and tricks. So I was also eager to reach out to folks that I thought would be excited and open with that. And not that's because that's not everybody's approach. But for the folks that are quoted in the book in those how-to guides and stuff, those are people who are excited to share what they know and excited about the idea that by giving a small tidbit of their knowledge away, they can make someone's life at home more tasty, you know? Um, so that was definitely a consideration. Like I reached out to people who I thought would want to talk. Um, and I'm pleased with, you know, how many folks are featured in the book. Um, so beyond the recipes, you know, the folks featured in those how-to guides, some of them have a recipe in the book, but a lot don't. So it's even more voices, more points of view, more restaurants being represented. How many voices overall are featured in the book? counted and this is not the first time I've been asked so it's like something I'm going to probably have to do um, so but that I have generally speaking I, you know with the, the actual certainly number. certainly at least 150 people um, but I think possibly 200 okay we are pausing just a moment Chris to talk about one of our favorite places to eat ringside steakhouse yeah it's fantastic and as the holidays approach I think one of the best ideas is to save... I I know there are a lot of people out there who love to um, prepare a beautiful, bountiful meal for their family and loved ones for the holidays, both Thanksgiving and Christmas, but so does Ringside, and they've already prepared that for you. So if you'd like to nix all the effort and time that goes into preparing a meal and get the quality of a holiday meal that Ringside can produce for you, it's all there at the click of your mouse or your finger on your phone. When you go to uh, ringsidesteakhouse.com, you can look into their Thanksgiving family t- turkey dinner for six. Yeah, I'm looking at this uh, roasted split bone in turkey breast, which uh, comes with the cranberry sauce and the gravy. That's delicious. And the artisan bread stuffing. Oh, you wanted to go back and forth, Court. It's a that's what sure. Wait, I wait. got the cue after doing this for ten years. <laughs> I got your cue. No, the artisan bread stuffing with sage and onion. You've also got whipped russet potatoes, and even if if you're a big fan of carrots and herbs, you can get that as well. 
Oh, you took two of them. So I'm going to go with the pumpkin pie, courtesy of Willamette Valley Pie Company. So um, they went to the pie experts for that uh, for the dessert. And I would say, listen, here, it's a great idea. You don't even have to think. I know when you go to the grocery store and you're preparing a meal for lots of people, you know, you have to buy it, prep it, spend all the time. And you may not have the time to do that. And you may not want to spend all the money necessary for the quantity of ingredients you don't need. Mm -hmm. This is, this is no fuss, no muss. Pick it up, warm it the day of. And we've done this before, Court. Warm it the day of. And, um, it's a, it's a great idea by just going to the website. You click, they'll come back to you with a time when you pick it up and it's all there. And Thanksgiving dinner aside, it is the holiday season in general, and why not take your family to a great uh, Portland institution this holiday season and just stop by Ringside itself and have a great meal there? Yeah. And by the way, I'll note that if you don't do this for Thanksgiving, you can do it for Christmas also. You can plan that as well. And if you can't do that, then you can really have uh, a great Christmas and give your loved ones or your family some Ringside Steakhouse gift cards for them to use at any time down the road. We are covering all the bases. You can get all the information about the uh, Thanksgiving dinner, upcoming meals, the gift cards, and all the hours to uh, visit at ringsidesteakhouse.com. And um, so since we're in Portland and most of our listeners are in Portland, why don't you talk a little bit about the Portland coverage in the book and who yeah. people might expect and want to go read? Yeah. Um, so... It sort of happened, um, I didn't do it purposefully, but a good chunk of the Portland restaurants in the book are featured in the chicken chapter. So we have a recipe from Nong. We have um, a recipe from Oma's Hideaway for um, their game hen. And we have um, like the essence of ramen chicken wings from Toki. And then we also have um, a recipe from Kachka. And we put the Kachka um, pelmeni in the sides. And with that recipe, for example, you know, one of the things in the book that I tried to balance is we didn't like veto the idea that a recipe might exist in a restaurant's cookbook, but I tried whenever possible to like, if the recipe has been previously published, is there something unique that we're adding to it or some other element? So for example, you know, the Kachka Palmeni, that recipe is of course in the Kachka cookbook, but we, um, the sauce we did in this recipe was like a caviar beurre blanc, which is not in the cookbook and is so fantastically restauranty. Um, so I loved that. Um, with the Toki recipe, what's fun about that one, you know, I was on the phone with Peter Cho and we were talking about, you know, how to bring that recipe to a home cook. And, you know, his cooks, they were doing like real food science to like, figure out the seasoning to like bring that ramen flavor. And then he was just like, we should just have people use instant ramen packets. I was like, great. That sounds exactly right to me. So that's what the recipe calls for. You know, you mean the cheap um, instant ramen that we have yeah. in college or yeah. Like Nong Shim. Okay. Cause now would they get the, they have the Momofuku noodles, which are. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I think to each their own, you know, you pick, a, pick a seasoning packet that works for you and try it out, you know? Um, and yeah, so I think the Portland restaurants are really reflective of, I had already told you, you know, like Nong's and Kachka are vital parts of Portland dining. 
um, especially for me, there was no world in which I wouldn't have reached out to them. I think Toki is a good example, actually, of like, were there any chefs that on a personal level I was excited to I, that I was excited to feature. Peter is one of those chefs for me. I worked for Peter a very, very, very long time ago. He was a chef de cuisine at um, the restaurant where I did my first restaurant, like real restaurant job. Um, and I think that combined with how impactful his work at Hanok and now Toki is, I think, in like the national discussion of Korean cooking in America, that was like a no brainer for me, you know, but on a personal level, I was excited to get to work with Peter on this recipe. Um, well, also kind of a full circle moment for me. He he and Son have offered up so many unique. I don't I don't necessarily know that they're trend setting, but they were also they were all very different avenues to dine. You know, in their home, and you know, you get to know them. Peter, they're both just awesome people, and have their experiments. We'll call them experiments to start out with with new restaurants. It's just awesome. I don't you know I don't brimming know with creativity. And right. I think they are innovators, not just on the plate, but in the work of building a life in the restaurant industry. I think they're real innovators. And I know for other chefs with young children, um, they're like a guiding light. There are people who are really trying to figure out how to make the life work. How about for anybody who has had or has young children? And they're, you know, they're really a great example on, oh, on sure. how to do it in a really tough industry. Yes. So, uh, you know, they had to, they had to work pretty hard to figure that out. Um, do you have any, um, well, I would bet that all the recipes in that book are like your children. So it's really hard to pick out favorites, but are there any that stand out that you think that uh, let's let's approach it from this way: that people from Portland who have been to Kachka and have been to Hanok and Toki, but who might want to explore outside of Portland, might want to might be most excited to try out just a couple of recipes, understanding that you can't mention all of them, so that anybody who's listening to this who doesn't hear their recipe mentioned, they shouldn't have their heart broken. I mean, there's so much. You know, it's a really it's. It's a hundred recipes is a lot of recipes. And then there's also all the ideas and the guides. Like there, there are like no recipe recipes scattered throughout the book. I think I maybe I'll flip it into like for a beginner. There are recipes that if you're a beginner, I know that you can dive right in and succeed with. I think the Kismet broccoli toast from the brunch chapter, it's like actually pretty easy. And the end result is still really refined. Um, I think another beginner-friendly recipe, the Chez Panisse salad, that's really, it's it's mostly doing your work of shopping for the wonderful cheese and the beautiful greens, but the actual work of putting the salad together, you'll learn how to make a good vinaigrette and you're serving a lovely salad, but it that is very accessible for a beginner skill set. And it's pretty impressive to be able and to say you're having a Chez Panisse salad. Yeah. And then, you know, for our project cooks out there, for the more seasoned home cooks, there are some big projects in this book. I think about um, there's a beautiful orange blossom brioche from the Purple House in in Portland, Maine. It's it's outside of Portland, but it's near Portland, Maine, where like you have to make tapos, which are like a little hat (laughs) from the brioche. And that whole process is complex. Like I, if you've never baked anything, I don't know that I'd point you towards brioche. Um, I think about, you know, there's a recipe from Sean Brock from his restaurant, Audrey in Nashville, and that is very complex. 
if you are really making all the components because it's it that's like true fine dining you know there's sub recipes it's tricky uh but you you can do it we've tested it 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 will work for you um but again i don't know if you're a beginner that that's where i would point you are you a are you a prolific cook at home now with a a little one which gets a little more challenging right yeah um I would say no, this is not a season of life where I have the time to do project cooking. But I do think one of the things about having a toddler, um, especially, you know, when when she turned one, we were still very much in pandemic mode and going out was still something, you know, we weren't doing it all that often. Uh, Like toddlers eat five times a day, three meals, two snacks. Um, So I it really upped the amount that I was cooking because I was also eager to be like giving her whole foods, expanding her palate, exposing her to all these flavors that I wanted to make sure she was familiar with so that eventually she'll be, you know, able to take the same pleasure that I do from trying new things. Um, So I do cook a lot. And I think from the book, I was able to put you know, one of the cool things about being the person working on it was like, I got to put some of the tips, tricks and ideas into practice right away. Um, So some of the tips around like, literally like rotisserie chicken from the grocery store, we have a whole thing about what to do with one, you know, how chefs deal with it. Um, And like, I started stealing those ideas right away. Um, Pantry staples, I kind of freshened up what some of my like go to add ons were based on the conversations I was having with chefs. Um, some of the sauces and toppings from the dishes I've worked into like our repertoire. So again, it's, and that's, I think a wonderful way to use this book. You don't have to, like, it's not, there's more than one way to succeed with it. It, Success doesn't have to look like recreating a dish from a restaurant. It can be taking the great idea and making it part of your life. Now it's better and tastier. I had the simplest thing ever as a, you know, I raised two kids myself and um, I can't say I was the best cook or I was feeding them the healthiest food, but I went through this and, you know, to the point where I got them out of the house to, to when I went to eat at the chef's counter at the Country Cat years ago. And I watched as they took one part of the meal and they put it in the oven for 20 minutes. And I, I remember saying to my dining companion at the time, holy shit, everything doesn't have to be a crescendo ending at the same moment. I can do that and finish what I'm doing without freaking out. That that to me was the simple, you know, now I look at that and think anybody would look at me and go, you really didn't know that. But no, I didn't spend time in kitchens other than 19 in the late 70s, um, my only restaurant job years ago, which... Uh, it was kind of a fun thing, but um, yeah, those little tips can change your life, right? Or not? Yeah, and they're really scattered throughout the book. And there were some things that you know aren't even about food. And like there, I, there's this one conversation I had that I'm not. I genuinely, I'm not even sure if this landed in the book. I'd have to double check. But like we were talking about using, like use use the good china, use the good, use your I good linens. Doing that. You know, it it elevates things. It makes things more more fun. And I remember saying, like, because I had these, like, beautiful block-printed um, linen napkins that I actually got on a restaurant scouting trip in Louisville several years ago that I was, like, only pulling out for special occasions. And the chef was like, 
napkins are meant to get dirty. That's what they're for. And it was like a light bulb moment for me. Because I was like, oh, why am I being so precious about this thing that's literally meant to get dirty? I should use it because I enjoy them. And that's been that kind of shift, too. I think in a lot of ways, chefs are a lot less precious than home cooks about the utilitarian aspects of what what's up when we're cooking, serving, and eating. Um, and that was a really good mindset shift for me. Well, good. I had the same – I had silver that my grandmother left that had not been used. And I had a friend over once who said – I don't remember how it came up. Well, why don't we use that? And I hadn't pulled it out in years, not for holidays or anything. And now I pull it out all the time. I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's cool doing no good use. sitting in a drawer. I, I know. I should probably either sell it or use it. I did see, I like watching uh, vintage YouTube shows. So there was a show on old commercials and they had the... um the joy commercials where you could see yourself in the plate and they referenced your everyday plates. And then I realized, well, by default, that means you have your everyday plates, but you have your formal ones too, which people I don't, maybe they do think about, but I think we're a little less formal now at home. Yeah. And I think certainly most of my friends and like when we all got married and stuff, I don't know anybody who registered for China um, who has the space to store a second a second set of dishes you use once a year. I got, um, um, my, my parents are divorced. I have their wedding china from like the 80s and it's really beautiful. And that's been, I use it now and I put it in the dishwasher because like that's what was holding me back from using it. it was like, well, I don't want to have to hand wash everything. But and it wouldn't, it wouldn't really, really affect it unless you used it every single day and dish, put it in the dishwasher every single day. I have some gold leaf glasses that a friend told me, oh, never put those in the dishwasher. And then I still kind of don't. But I realized that's if I used them every day, there'd be a problem. But if I use them five times a year, big deal. It's not going to make a big difference. Okay. Yeah. One, uh, I don't want to keep you all day. I know you've got a busy day and you've got uh, things going on in Portland you have to attend to. But I'm just curious, um, outside of the the normal food cities that most people think of, San Francisco, New York, maybe even Portland, that's a good question. Do you cons- still consider Portland uh, an important city in the, the food world? You can't say no to that, but there are degrees to that answer. But if someone wants to go on a food vacation domestically, and someplace they may not have thought of that might surprise them. I know people have different tastes, like some people might enjoy Southern food more than others, but are there any cities you think would be incredibly surprising that people could have four days, a long weekend, and just eat eat wonderful things throughout the the food that they may not have thought of? I mean, there are so many places where you can do that. And I think the answers that come to mind that are like, at the level where like we have a local eater site. So if there's a local eater site, that means there's enough of a restaurant scene that we can sustain coverage. Um, I think the surprising cities in that mix, I think of Houston as a go-to answer for that question. The Houston dining scene is so dynamic. It's so diverse. It's so robust. Um, I love dining in Houston. I think um, this is a cop out, but like I, I consider Portland. Yes, Portland is still an important dining scene. I can I put like Portland, Portland and New Orleans kind of in the same bucket where it's like they're like geographically and population wise, like a bit a bit small, but have a real outsized impact on American food culture. 
Um, I think Nashville has is a really great dining city right now. Um, there's a lot going on. The other city I would highly recommend, I think Philly. There has never been a better time to eat in Philadelphia. So good right now. Um, and then for even smaller cities where we don't have coverage, um, I will say uh, I have been excited about Cincinnati. There's some really interesting stuff that's been happening there for the past five years or so. Um, so I have my eye on Cincinnati. Um, likewise, there's interesting stuff happening in St. Louis. Um, and Would you consider opening up offices in those cities? Like, do you do that? I'm, you had to do that at some point. You started with zero. So you had to decide where to go. But now? Um, that's not a decision process that I would participate in. That would happen at like the executive level. Right. But you could make suggestions, I would imagine. Um, I, I'm going to pass on that question of whether we're going to expand or not. Um, but yeah. And then the other city that I would kind of point to, um, I would, I would, I would look into like Phoenix. There's been some cool stuff happening in Phoenix, which I feel like is like long overdue. Um, based on population, like Phoenix is actually a pretty big city. Um, and yeah, those are my answers. <laughs> those are good answers. I appreciate those. And when you mentioned Phoenix, I started thinking pizza. I'm from Connecticut, so New Haven area. And oh, such good pizza. Pizza's top of mind. So uh, I was going to ask you if you've been there. But why do you think Portland be- has become such a pizza mecca all of a sudden? And by all of a sudden, I mean in the last eight years. Um, well, I'd say it's not for Portland. It's not alone. Like pizza has, I would say the, in cities nationwide, there's been far more interest in like wood fired cooking. I would also point to like, there's been nationwide interest in, um, uh, bread baking. And so I think about like, like Neapolitan long fermented dough that's been of interest to, to chefs, um, especially in the last 10 years. Um, so I, I think there's that element. And also I wouldn't be surprised if the pandemic has pushed some folks to like reconsider having pizza be like a star of their menu because of the takeout and delivery mm-hmm. element, like pizza travels very well. Um, and yeah, so I, I hesitate to like, I don't think Portland's on a unique journey there. Like, it you it really used to be that if you wanted great pizza, you were going to New Haven, you were going to New York. Some people would say you'd go to Chicago, and then maybe the other cities had a person who was a pizza nerd doing a great pizza in their city. But the idea that these multiple cities now have robust like pizza scenes feels newish and like fantastic. Very into it. Yeah, I think it's definitely p- pandemic related. It, it's easier, right, to manage that menu. And you're right, takeout. So listen, I sincerely appreciate it. I, I a couple of things. I appreciate having you here. I appreciate the quick response uh, from, from, you know, <laughs> you responded. You didn't even, you know, you know who I was and you got back and said, I can do that on Monday. So I really appreciate that. And, uh, I think we've learned a lot. And uh, I hope you were, I hope I didn't throw you for a loop on too many questions before we talked about the book, but uh, just unflappable. (laughs) Well, I I could tell you are, you you handled everything with a plum. And so um, I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on and 
perhaps we can uh, find reason to have you on again. Much as we've yeah, that would be great. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it, um, and I had a really nice time. Right at the Fork is hosted and produced by Chris Angeles and Court Johnson. Connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Food Podcast PDX or on Facebook at Right at the Fork or online at rightatthefork.com. Thank you.